0: All right, country music fans, I'm going to invite you to help me out. According to Jake Owen, tiny shoes are made for? Oh, wait, no. I, I thought I might have heard it back there. Tiny shoes are made for tiny feet. How are you? How, come on. Um, made for, have you, if you guys have turned on, uh, down at the Clemens West Pool, I'll just say we listen to a lot of country music in the summer. And um, if you've happened to turn on the country music radio station, you've probably heard Made for You by Jake Owen. So uh, let, let, let's just see um, if we can get the first verse, all right? So it, he he starts off with, um, water towers are made for hearts and... Oh, wow. I thought I thought we'd have more country music fans here. So, so water towers are made for hearts and names. I'll, I'll help us out here. Friday nights are made for... You got this one. Football games. There we go. All right. Fallen leaves are made for Fallen in. Oh yeah. All right. We've got we've got a, a fan somewhere over here. And then front porch steps are made for yeah. Good night kissing. There we go. All right. Not bad. We were like you know three out of four there. And um, and I'm not really even sure how much of that is true. I I I, I suspect that the uh, Forsyth County Sheriff's Office might take exception to water towers being name, made for hearts and names, uh, but, but I think Jake Owen has a point here that everything is made for a purpose, right? Bef- behind every creation, be- behind every invention, there is a creator, and that creator builds, he or she constructs for the, for the purpose of, of doing something that will, that will fulfill a need, even if it's not always obvious, there is a purpose behind every creation. Uh, take, for instance, this beak-looking apparatus. Any ideas what this was made for? Well, this, this of course, is a nose stylus. And, and, and this was created so that um, you can hold your phone or your iPad with one hand, and then you can work it with your nose... So, so of course you can have your other hand free, and so um, for those of you that, that you know have uh, busy multitaskers in your life, uh, this is the perfect gift for them, so that uh, you know they, they, they can um, stir the rice or flip some pancakes or you know hold a book with one hand and, and compose a tweet with another. Well, how about um, how about this one? This uh, you know it's pretty simple. Invention, we've got some elastic cord and then this curved piece of material. Any guesses? Well, this, this is actually a patented invention. It was created by Virgil Gates in 1876 for the purpose of, there you go, holding the mustache out of the way while eating or drinking. So, in, in the event, um, I'm, I'm looking right here at the, the Ryans. Um, Susan, in the, in the event that you're looking for a, you know, a belated Father's Day gift for that mustached or, or bearded man in your life, uh, this, is, this is undoubtedly they would welcome this gift uh, of a mustache shield so that um, they could obviate that inconvenience that caused by eating soups and foods of a similar consistency. Well, I, I've got one more for you. How about, um, how about this creation? Any, any ideas? what this was made for? What was the church created for? Yeah. Well, let me, let me, let me just ask this. Was it made so that um, we could have something to do on Sunday mornings before we go out for brunch or before we watch a football game or a NASCAR race? Right, which way? Are we shaking our heads east-west or north-south? <laughs> Hopefully some east-west here, right? No. Okay. So if it wasn't made for those things, then what was it made for? Ah, I hear a couple. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, um, that there's some good guesses out here. I'm going to submit to you that the church was created for three reasons. Uh, but before we get there, I, just, I think it might be helpful if we answer uh, a few other questions. And I just want to start by defining what I mean when I use the word church, because the word church can take on two different connotations, depending on the context. There's ultimately only one church which consists of the global community of believers on earth, plus those already in glory. However, this one church takes the form of countless local churches, each of which can be viewed as a microcosm of the larger whole. So, for example, when the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and in Ephesians 3.21, he says this, he says, to him be the glory In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, he is referring to the one and only universal church. But when Paul writes the Christians in Corinth and he says, this is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church, while in this context he is referring to the countless local churches where he has ministered like the church in Philippi, or the church in Antioch, or the church in Galatia. And the way that you know that your church, your local church, is indeed an outcropping of the larger universal church is through a local church's commitment to orthodoxy. That is the foundational truths of the Christian faith that, as Jude says, were once for all entrusted to the saints. And I think it might be also helpful if we reminded ourselves the origin of the church, who, who created the church? Is this, is this the brainchild of the first disciples? Did the, did the disciples get together in the upper room after Jesus ascended into heaven? And Peter stood up and said, all right, let's brainstorm this. What's next? We, we just got a blue sky this. Who's got an idea? No idea is a bad idea. Just throw it out there. And, you know, here, here's John slips up his hand in the corner and says, I don't know, you know, me and James have been kicking around this idea, and we, we were thinking that maybe we could start this thing that would be like a, a religious club, and I don't know, we were thinking we could call it the church. Is, is, the, is the church a man-made idea? No. The first time we see the word church in the New Testament, it's from the lips of Jesus. And Jesus asked the disciples, he said, who do you say that I am? Maybe some of you remember this passage. And Peter says, well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which is just to say, Simon, son of Jonah. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my what? You remember? Church. So Jesus creates the church. It's established by him and he's the head of it. And on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus prays for the unity of his church. He, he intends for his church to be this very close-knit community. Pastor Brian highlighted this last week. Jesus knows all that he's about to endure, and he, he knows what's ahead of him, and you know what's on his mind? His church. And he prays this In John 17, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us. There's a repeated word in that passage, isn't there? It's the word one. Jesus wants oneness for his followers. In fact, Jesus intended that the relational connection would be so strong among his followers that he went even so far as to refer to his disciples as brothers. This is probably the one and only time it would be appropriate to use Derek Zoolander in a sermon reference, but I'm going to go there. Uh, If you recall what happened after um, Zoolander's good friend's Brent, Meekus, and Rufus died in that freak gasoline fight accident. You, you know that Zoolander is chosen to give the eulogy, or as he calls it, the yagoogly. And um, he says, he says Brent, Meekus, and Rufus were like brothers to me. Uh, what does he mean by that? That they, that they shared a common parent? No, because Zoolander goes on to say that When you refer to someone who isn't part of your family as a brother, what you're doing is you're stressing the closeness of that relationship. And in the early church, guess how the Christians referred to one another? As brothers and sisters. Just in the book of Acts alone, 11 times we see something like this. We we see a passage that would begin with, The disciples, each one who he was able, decided to provide help. For the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Or after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Jesus intends for his church to be so united that if there are differences in ethnicity or nationality and socioeconomic status, that all these things would pale in comparison to their unity in Jesus Jesus intends for, for our common identity as members of his family to be so strong that it just it trumps every other distinction. That the bond is so close among his followers that, that followers of Jesus would feel comfortable referring to one another as brothers and sisters. And this really is, is, is staggering to consider when you think about all of the differences that existed in the early church. When Jesus picked his 12 disciples, you recall that he picked Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. I mean, is he trying to start a reality TV show here? I mean, this is the guy that's like really cozy with the Romans, with the guy that wants to take up arms against the Romans. In modern times, this would be like putting Senator Ted Cruz and Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez in the same small group. I, I, I think it was that kind of potential volatility there. And, um, and, and Jesus continues to push. On, on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus sent his spirit, uh, the, the distinction between members of his family became even more pronounced because what we're told is that in Jerusalem, at the time of Pentecost, that there were uh, devout Jews... That, that were there for the celebration from every nation under heaven. And the gift of tongues was given so that everyone present could hear the gospel, the good news, uh, that, that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins. The gift of tongues was given so that everyone could hear this in their native language. And the church, which was previously comprised of Jews who had grown up attending Hebrew-speaking synagogues, was now blended with these Hellenist Jews from the diaspora. And this growth uh, created a little tension. We read about that in Acts 6, but the church worked through it and maintained its unity. And, and then if that wasn't challenging enough, we see the Holy Spirit does a work in Samaria. If you guys remember, uh, the, the Jews and in, in, in the uh, Samarians, they weren't exactly uh, close with one another. In fact, um, if you were uh, Jewish and you lived up by the Sea of Galilee, which was up north, and you wanted to go down to Jerusalem for the festival, they, they would add an extra day to their journey rather than even pass through Samaria to set foot in that. But if you recall, uh, Jesus decides to break with social norms, and he passes through Samaria. And he has a conversation there with a, with a woman at the well. He asks her for a drink, and she is so flabbergasted That he would talk to her, that this is what she says. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds this parenthetical comment. He says, For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, Jesus invites the Samaritans into the church. In Acts 8, we see that the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit and they're brought together in fellowship. Now, while the, the, the Jews and the Samaritans, they despised each other, there was at least some shared heritage there. But with the, the Gentiles, there was no shared heritage. And in Acts 10 and 11, we see that the Holy Spirit does a work among the Gentiles, and they too become part of a church. Jesus says, I know that you used to look down your nose on each other. I know you didn't like each other. I know you didn't want to have any dealings with one another, but I'm bringing you together in a new community. I'm destroying the dividing wall of hostility. I want you to think of yourselves as brothers and sisters now. And oh, by the way, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You're going to be one new community. And then all along the Mediterranean basin, local churches began to pop up with Jews and Gentiles united together in fellowship in places like Berea and Thessalonica and Iconium. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he bring together people that might not otherwise have much in common and call them to be united? Well, We're going to answer that original question. Jesus established the church and united us for purpose number one, if you're taking notes, edification edification. For those of us who are Christians, we could say that Jesus established the church for us. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter four, verse 11, where we find this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of Each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Here we see that one of the purposes of the church is the perfecting of God's people. In some ways, we can think of the Christian life as a reclamation effort. We all have a sin nature inside of us. It's one that we're born with. And the way that we're restored is for the image of Christ to be formed in us. God loves us just the way we are, but he doesn't want to leave us just the way that we are. A passage tells us that we're to grow up in every way into Christ, who is the head. And in God's design, the way that this growth happens is through the church. There are diversity of spiritual gifts given to believers, given given to Christians in Christ's body for the building up of that body. And every believer is, is viewed as a, as, a, as a limb in Christ's body. And every believer has a crucial role to play in this growth. And so for those of us who are Christians, when we choose to, to live out our faith together, when we covenant together in community, and each part is working properly, it says that we cause each other to grow. We build ourselves up in love. That's the first purpose. The second purpose for which Jesus established the church and united us is evangelism. If edification, we say, is is, is for us, it's for you and me, evangelism is for the world. The Greek word euangelizo, from which we get our word evangelize, simply means to proclaim a good message. And the good message the church has to share is that Jesus died for sins. He died in our place to forgive us our sins, to restore us to God, and to grant everlasting life. It's pretty incredible news. And as Brian reminded us last week, it's news we don't want to ever get old. And the church exists to share this message with those who haven't heard it. If you still have your Bible open, you can turn with me to John 20, verse 19. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appears first to Mary Magdalene, and then he appears to his disciples So we could, we could say that the church is made up of people who have been called out of darkness into light. And while being people who are called out, at the same time, Scripture makes clear that we are people who are sent out. So in this passage, we see that Jesus first identifies himself as the sent one. He says, as the Father has sent me. But then Jesus Changes roles and he becomes the sender. He says, Even so now, I'm sending you. Scripture reveals that God's heart is to go into the world. And when we read the Bible, what we see is we see a triune God going into our world on mission. So the Father sends the Son and then the Son sends the Spirit. And it's not so much that that we as a church, we have a mission. So much, I think, is that that God's mission has a church. And that's why in our Vision 2025, we said that we as a church, we want to be increasingly known by our concern for the spiritual well-being of others. The church's purpose is to continue this mission that God began of seeking and saving the lost. When we get together, it should energize us and equip us to go and to leave here and to be missionaries in our, our neighborhoods and in our offices and in our schools. It also means that we have a special concern for those areas of the world where there aren't as many churches and there are fewer options for people to hear the good news. Because Jesus said that we're to make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1, he said to his disciples, Go and be my witnesses not just in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but he says, to the ends of the earth. And in order for us as a church, any church, any local church to do this well, we have to be united. If we remember the passage we looked at earlier from John 17 where Jesus stressed oneness, we see as we continue reading that he he shares the reason that he's praying for this. the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. So Jesus reveals why he's praying for his church to have oneness. It's so that the world, the watching world, may be convinced of the truth behind the message that we have to share. And and if we look at history, we would have to admit that it's probably more common for people to be divided than united. I mean, even our own country, I would say that we have relative stability, but would you say that we're united as a nation right now? And and here's what I observed. Uh, not, Not only is unity hard to come by, but it seems like the more diverse a group becomes, the harder it is to experience unity, right? I just I just say that there's there's no shortage of animosity in the world right now. I mean you try putting together Jews and Arabs or Greeks and Turks or Eastern Europeans and Russians or uh, Indians and Pakistanis or Japanese and Chinese and see what happens. Things could be a little volatile. And it's not hard to come up with an explanation for the tension when you think about history. But you know what would be harder to explain? If you had Jews and Arabs, if you had Greeks and Turks, if you had blue-collar and white-collar and uptown and downtown, and you had urban and rural and progressives and conservatives, and you had those with wealth, with those who were struggling, and they were all together and they were all united. That would be a phenomenon that would demand an explanation, wouldn't it? It, it? Jesus creates the church so that, that our unity would be a powerful apologetic to the watching world, that they would, they would see the way that, that, that members of his family relate to one another, and there would be curiosity, that they would have a desire to be a part of it. And when there are divisions, and when there's strife, and when there's backbiting, it has the opposite effect. According to the end of verse 23, the unity of believers not only serves to convince the world that Jesus is indeed the one that's sent from the Father, that he's the Messiah, that he's the promised one, but our unity as believers is also proof that we have been caught up in the love that the Father has for the Son. That's the second reason, evangelism. The third reason that Jesus established the church and united us as his people is exaltation, or said differently, worship. If you have your Bible open, you can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You can write that off to the side if you're taking notes. Here we find this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So God looks down on his family, all these individual believers, and he, in some ways, views us as an entity. We're his people. We're his family. And then we get a purpose statement. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church exists for giving praise to God. Now, now everything that God has created is for his glory, but as his redeemed people, we have a special role to play in this because we have experienced something of his grace and of his mercy and of his love. There, there There are attributes of God's character that we can appreciate, that we can declare, that we can praise, that even the angels can't, because of what we've experienced firsthand. And we, we should, and we, we can worship the Lord individually, but something special happens when we worship corporately as a united body. When, when people who would otherwise have little in common gather together to worship, we reveal God's greatness Last Sunday, we sang a song that uh, Chris Tumlin wrote uh, a few years ago called, How Great is Our God? Anybody remember singing that last week? Okay, so there's a line in there where it says, sing with me, how great, how great is our God, and all will see how great is our God. So this is an invitation to sing so that everyone can see how great. There, there, There are two times, kinds of magnification. There are microscopes which makes something small appear bigger than it really is. And then there are telescopes. And telescopes allow you to see uh, something that's really big for for really how big it is. It, it, It reveals the bigness of it. And when we worship corporately, we're telescopes. When our love for Jesus transcends political ideologies and musical preferences and style of dress and cultural customs it says something about the awesomeness of the object of our worship. When, when, when people who might otherwise maybe disagree on how to alleviate poverty or how to improve education or what to do about gun control or immigration reform, when people with all these differences get together and they worship in unity as brothers and sisters, Jesus is exalted. Exalted. And Jesus loves unity so much, he said that when, when it's not present, that it, it, it actually interferes with our ability to worship. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, which is, which is very much an act of worship, and there you remember that, that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift That's how much he cares about unity in his body. Unity among God's people is the underlying prerequisite that allows us to fulfill the purposes for which he created the church. And for the most part, I'm glad to say that I don't sense there's a lot of division or backbiting or strife in God's church here at River Oaks. I'm I'm grateful for that. And I also want to observe that, that being united isn't the same thing as the absence of conflict. And what Jesus wants for his church isn't just the absence of conflict. He wants oneness. And as I, as I think about that, may, maybe the greatest challenge to God's church being united right now, it isn't some political ideology some, some other controversy uh, about ideas, I, I think maybe the greatest, church, the, the greatest threat to the church being united is simply how easy it is right now to privatize the Christian faith. How easy it is just to, to go online and, and, and to stream some great content that might edify you in, in the privacy of your own home just whenever it's convenient for you, and, and, and to trade that in for the privilege and maybe even the inconvenience of being united to God's people, to being united with brothers and sisters. And, and I know that the pandemic hasn't really helped with any of this. With the onset of COVID, we were all encouraged uh, to, to, to shelter in place, to limit social interaction, to self-isolate, to quarantine. And it kind of felt like, you know, if we, if we were all just as a family, you know, sailing together on one ship towards a common destination, what happened was we were pretty much encouraged to, to hype into our individual life rafts. And I just want to encourage us, when this, when this whole thing blows over, that for us not to, to make our life rafts the new normal, for, for our life rafts not to become too cozy. Because God would want us as a people to be vitally connected in community. Uh, God, in, in the New Testament, likens the church to a body, uh, to his bride, to a building, to his family, to his household. And so I think what God would want for us is f- for us to really be sailing together in one ship, towards a common destination, not on little life rafts. And it's not just any ship, right? It's it's not a carnival cruise ship where there's some distinction between the passengers and the crew, and, you know, some people do some work, and some people are just hanging out, and, uh, you know, there's not really any purpose. We're just out here having a good time. I think that it would be more like we're sailing together on a naval warship. I think when, when a naval warship leaves port It's for a purpose. It's setting out to accomplish a mission. And everyone has a role to play, right? If the captain comes on and says, all hands on deck, half the crew doesn't just hang out in their bunk. And and as we saw in that Ephesians passage, that we we do really do have a captain who says, all hands on deck, that the the way that the body grows is when each part is is working together to build itself up in love. And I just want to ask you, do, do, do you feel like you're united to Christ's body? Do you, do you feel connected? Is, is the church more than an event that you attend on Sunday morning? Are, are, there, are there people in the church that you might feel comfortable calling brothers and sisters? And, and I realize that kind of relationship takes some time to cultivate, but I think that's what God would want for us. And I, I want to encourage you in that, because I think when we, when, when we lean into that, that's when we experience God's best, and that's when we're best able to, to fulfill His purposes. And, and if you don't feel very united right now, I want to just encourage you to take a step, to do something about that. Uh, we, we as a church, um, we have all kinds of things Uh, that are starting up in the very near future that would be just a great opportunity for you to become more connected. We've got small groups. We have journey groups. We have women's ministry. We have moms. Uh, There's a host of ministry teams and other events that are on the horizon. In fact, right after this service, we have something called a Taste of Community, which is happening right through those double doors right there in the community room where you can get more information about some of these groups. And I'd encourage you, if you'd say I don't, I don't, I don't know if I feel like I'm united to Christ's body, then that's where you need to be at twelve or ten thirty, okay? And uh, I, I also want to make clear about something since we're talking about how we become a part of be, being a part of God's church. That really, how this happens, it, it's not enough to walk into a building that has a cross on it on Sunday morning. That, that's not really what makes us part of God's family. It's not even joining a small group. It's not even giving to a church. That's not what makes us part of His household. It doesn't matter, really, your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your economic status, your marital status. It doesn't matter your age. That, that doesn't determine whether or not you're part of God's family. What matters is what we make of Jesus. Jesus turned to His disciples one time and He said, I am the gate. And what he means by that is he's the entry point. He's how we become part of God's family. And uh, the, the, the way that we enter is that we believe that Jesus died for our sins, that we confess him as Savior and Lord. And when we do that, that's how we become part of his church. And if you've never done that before, I'm going I'm to pray for us in a moment, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. Will you pray with me, church? Jesus, we want to join our hearts together now, and we want to pray in the same way that you prayed. We want to pray for unity. We want to pray for oneness. We would ask that we would be one as you and the Father are one. Would we experience the same love for each other that the Father has for the Son? And Lord, where that isn't the case right now, where there is division, where there is bitterness, where there's unforgiveness, where there's tension, where there are relationships that have been strained, we pray that as we turn our eyes upon you that those matters would dissolve that you, by your spirit, would do a work to bring the healing that's necessary so that you could be exalted and you could have unity in your church. Lord, heal us where that healing needs to happen. Lord, we pray not only for our church, but also for our country, for this land. Would we be one nation, united under you, because of the revival that you would bring because of the way that you would pour out your spirit. Lord, we think of those who right now are in the path of a powerful hurricane down in the Gulf. Pray that you would protect them. Pray that you would cause this storm to lose speed. Lord, keep everyone safe. And we think of those who right now are not sure of their eternal destiny because they've never made the decision to accept your son as their Savior and Lord. And if that's you, you can just pray a prayer like this. You can say, Jesus, I believe that you are exactly who you claim to be and that you died on the cross for me. And that you rose from the dead. And I recognize that my salvation is not something that I can achieve. It's something that I need to receive. And so I place my faith in you. And I want to live for you all of my days. And all God's people said, Amen.